Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 139, King Tutankhaten. Today, we begin a complex, fascinating, and famous chapter in Egyptian history. The reign of the boy king Tutankhaten, better known as Tutankhamun. It is the start of a new era in Egyptian royal history. The reigns of Akhenaten and Neferu-Aten are over. Now, the following generation must deal with their decisions and how to respond to the more extreme policies of their predecessors. But how did Tutankhaten rule, and how did his reign begin? Today, we explore that story. This episode was supported by Catherine, Peter, and Julia, who became patrons of the podcast as hereditary nobles. Folks, thank you kindly for your generosity. Your support helps keep me in food and coffee, and helps keep the show running. May Aten, Amun, Ra, and Min, the great gods of creation, bless your efforts, and bring prosperity to your household, your estate, and to your city. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the tale. The year was 1343 BCE, approximately. Nefer-Neferu-Aten was dead. It was now regnal year one in the majesty of a new ruler, the king of southern and northern Egypt, Tutankh-Aten. The Egyptian court was probably in flux, a moment of transition. Akhenaten was gone, as was Nefertiti, the queen, then king of Egypt. Now power rested in the hands of a child. The young prince, possibly Akhenaten's son, Tutankhaten. A new chapter had started in Egypt's political, social, and archaeological history. The time of Tutankhaten is better known as Tutankhamun, one of the most famous rulers to ever grace the thrones. Obviously, Tutankhaten, Tutankhamun, is famous for one thing above all, his lavish tomb stuffed with gold and art that lay hidden in the Valley of the Kings. Until 1922, when a determined expedition stumbled upon the spot and made the most fabulous discovery in archaeological history. The story of Tutankhamun's tomb and its golden treasures is probably the most famous tale in Egyptology, and we will cover that story in due course. For now, we should grapple with the more important questions. Tutankhaten, Tutankhamun, might be famous today, but was he actually important in Egyptian history? 
Was he a minor king whose celebrity is only due to his tomb? Or did he play a pivotal role in the social and political history of the country? In this episode, and the next few chapters, we explore those questions. Suffice to say, there is a lot more to this reign than most people are aware. Tutankhaten became the sole king of Egypt after the death of his predecessor. To begin, he received the crowns, scepters, and the thrones of the two lands. We do not know when exactly he inherited his power, and we do not know where exactly he performed his coronation. It is possible that he received the crowns at the royal residence of Aket Aten, Amana. On the other hand, we have very little artistic or archaeological evidence for Tutankhaten at this city. So it is equally possible that he took power, officially, at the southern city, Waset or Luxor, or at the city of enduring beauty, Mennefer or Memphis. Wherever he received the crowns, we do know how the young king presented his coronation. A stone stealer, fragmentary and broken, might belong to this king. It is damaged, but the images from the top survive, and we get an interesting scene. On this stealer, a king of Egypt appears twice. On the left, he is a child, wearing the blue crown, or kepresh. He stands in front of a god named Min Amun-Ra. This is a combination of Amun, the hidden one, Ra, the sun, and Min, the enduring or well-established, an ancient creator and fertility god, and a powerful symbol of the divine. Min stands tall as a mummy, wearing a crown of plumes like Amun. He has an erect penis to symbolize his virility, and he stands in front of a lettuce patch, which has mythological associations. In front of Min, the king is greeted by the goddess Isis, lady of the sky. The young king stands before Isis. Isis, or Aset, embraces the boy and presents one of her breasts for the child to suckle. The idea is that the goddess nourishes the ruler and treats him as her son, a mother suckling her child. If you have ever seen those icons of Jesus and Mary, you know the gist. Motherhood, mother's milk, is a powerful symbol for rulers and for gods. These scenes, Min and Isis with the young king, present the idea that the ruler is created and nourished by powerful deities. The right-hand side of the stela, though, presents the next phase of this process. To the right of Min and Isis, we see the young king once again. This time, he is larger, a youth or mature man. He holds the crook, a symbol of rule, and he wears an enormous, ornate crown. A towering assemblage, adorned with uraeus cobras, sun disks, and papyrus bundles. This crown is a combination of royal symbols, divine accoutrement, and good old-fashioned agriculture. Frankly, it is fabulous, and I would love to see somebody do this crown on the next season of Drag Race. Anyway, the young king appears in his regalia. He stands in front of two more deities. First, we see Amun-Ra, king of the gods and lord of the sky. Amun reaches out to place the crown on the king's head. 
This is a symbolic gesture of divine approval and the relationship between ruler and god. In a sense, it is like Amun-Ra is giving to Ankh-Aten his earthly authority, his power to rule. From here on out, the king governs with Amun's blessing. Behind Amun-Ra, we see Mut, the mother goddess and lady of the sky, Nebet-Pet. Mut wears a double crown, the red and white crown of northern and southern Egypt. In one hand, Mut reaches out to touch the young monarch. In the other, she holds forth a towering stem of papyrus. The papyrus curves left at the top, and this forms the hieroglyph Renpet, aka Year. In other words, Mut gives the young king the gift of years, a long life and a long reign. It is a touching present, but unfortunately, one that would not bear fruit. This stone stealer with its little images presents a wonderful scene of kingship and divine power. If it does depict Tutankhaten, which I think is a good bet, then it is a rare image of the ruler in his earliest phase. It shows that from the start, Tutankhaten continued a policy that his predecessor, Nefer Neferu Aten, had started. The king acknowledged, worshipped, and honoured all gods. He recognised Amun-Ra, and he associated himself with that authority. In other words, the persecution of Amun was over. The kings of Egypt were undoing the crime of Akhenaten. It is unclear whether Tutankhaten took power at the city of Akhet-Aten or somewhere else, but he may have spent a few months living and ruling at the current royal residence. Artifacts recovered from Akhet-Aten, Amana, testify to the presence and administration of Tutankhaten. The most common relic is a series of faience rings. These rings, made of a sort of artificial stone or glass, bear cartouches with the young king's throne name. These are the only artifacts that conclusively demonstrate Tutankhaten's presence in this city. It's not a lot to go on, but it suggests that, at the beginning of his reign, the young king spent some time here. At least a few months. Whatever the location, or the date, Tutankhaten came to power and received the crowns of southern and northern Egypt. He also received the scepters, the physical emblems of power and authority. These scepters were the crook and the flail, famous emblems of the pharaohs. Thanks to the preservation of his tomb, the crook and flail belonging to Tutankhaten actually survive, and we can look at these objects which the young king wielded at court. The crook and flail were made of bronze, but they were wrapped with strips of gold and blue glass. This made for a nice alternating striped pattern, which goes up the body of the symbols and wraps around the top. The bottom of each of these contained a stamp bearing the king's names. One of these, the flail, contained the name Tutankhaten, so we know that this was probably the item he carried as a child. It is lovely that these survive. On the one hand, they give us examples of royal paraphernalia, and on the other, they allow us to connect with the child king, to get a sense of the objects he held and used 
when he first became the ruler. Tutankhaten received the crowns and the scepters. He sat upon the throne and became the king of Egypt. With that, his reign began in earnest. In chapter 2, we will begin exploring the reign of Tutankhaten, the boy king of Egypt. We will look at the objects he used as ruler and meet the woman who would become his queen. That is after the music. See you in a moment. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tutankhaten received the crowns of Egypt, and he took up the scepters. Next, he sat upon his throne. We have a pretty good idea of the throne that Tutankhaten sat upon, because it survives. A golden chair, discovered in his tomb, shows the young king sitting, with his wife attending to him. The queen of Egypt, whom we will meet in a moment, seems to be anointing Tutankhaten, placing perfumes and oils upon him. This is a gesture of respect, affection, and purifying, making him suitable to hold the powers of king. This throne is made of wood, covered with gold, and it bears a variety of images and symbolism related to the young king. On the sides, the armrests take the form of cobras with large wings that reach out to embrace the cartouches of the king. These cobras wear the white and red crowns of southern and northern Egypt, so the armrests are elaborate symbols conveying the king's authority. On the back of the throne, we see a range of papyrus and lotus flowers fanning outwards, and another set of cobras, uraei, guard the king from the back. These cobras wear golden sun disks atop their heads, and they reference the power of the Uraeus to protect the ruler and to spit fire at his enemies. Of course, they are also emblems of the sun, the eternal power of Ra, and all its manifestations that shine upon the earth. We know that the young king used this throne from the very beginning of his reign, and we know that because the cartouches record his early name. All over this throne, hieroglyphs record the names of Tut-Ankh-Aten, the form of name that he was born with, and the one that he used at the very start of his rule. So, it's quite likely that this is the golden throne upon which the young boy sat when he first inherited power. Presumably, he used this for most of his life, so it's strange that they never updated the cartouches. Perhaps he had another chair that does not survive, or perhaps circumstances prevented any modification. I'm not sure. One interesting feature of this throne is the size. The chair is large, clearly designed for an adult, 
But the hieroglyphs record the name of Tutankaten at the start of his reign, when he was still a child. This begs the question, did this throne always belong to Tutankaten, or did he inherit it? Various scholars have studied this chair in detail, looking at its manufacture and decoration. There are many interpretations, but one that I find intriguing is the idea that this chair originally belonged to Akhenaten. The throne is designed for an adult, but parts of it have clearly been reworked or redesigned. It's possible that all of the decoration was replaced when the new owner came to the throne. So clearly this golden chair was repackaged for young Tutankhaten, but the original owner is unclear, and there is a good chance that this throne originally belonged to Akhenaten. At least, that is the argument put forth by Nozomu Kawai in his PhD study of the reign of Tutankhamun. Going through the various arguments, Kawai concludes that it's quite likely this chair originally belonged to the heretic king, quote-unquote, Akhenaten, the possible father of Tutankhamun and his great predecessor in power. If that is true, it is a remarkable find. And it might explain why the cartouches were never updated. Perhaps Tutankhaten inherited his predecessor's throne at the start of his reign, but later on, when royal policy changed, he abandoned this chair, and the throne may have gone into storage before eventually finding its way to his tomb. All of that is speculative, but it does convey an important point. The throne of Tutankhaten is not just a wonderful golden treasure. It records an interesting moment in the king's reign, and looking at the decoration and the alterations, historians may be able to reconstruct some of the priorities in the court at this phase of the reign. Whoever the original owner was, this golden chair was probably the throne that Tutankhaten used when he inherited power. It is a beautiful piece of artistic work, with colourful glass and wonderful golden decorations that show the king in the height of 18th dynasty splendour. I am glad it survives, and I hope that future research will uncover more of its secrets. Tutankhaten's reign began with glitter and gold, and the young king took up the scepters, the throne, and the crowns of Egypt. Once Tutankhaten became king, one of the first priorities for his government was a wife. The ruler would need a spouse to act alongside him in rituals, and eventually to bear his children. This woman would be his Chemet Nesut Weret, the king's great wife. Looking around, Tutankhaten had a couple of candidates for the job. By the time Tutankhaten came to power, there were several eligible princesses living in the royal court. The eldest daughter of Akhenaten, named Merit Aten, might have been a candidate, but she was probably too old. By this time, that woman would have been almost 20. And she was already a king's great wife, having married the mysterious Smenkkare just a few years earlier. The second option was Ankh Sn Pa Aten, the third daughter of Akhenaten and the next eldest to survive. Ankh Sn Pa Aten would be a good candidate, 
She was almost the same age as Tutankhaten, and she was the most senior, apart from the eldest. There were other children as well, but we do not know much about them. A couple of Akhenaten's other daughters may have passed away in the later years of his reign, and in the long run, it's not exactly clear how many children still survived. I won't beat around the bush, or but. For his king's great wife, Tutankhaten chose Ankh-esen Pa-aten. Ankh-esen Pa-aten, third daughter of Akhenaten and the second eldest to survive, was approximately 14 years old at this time. She was probably born in year 6 of Akhenaten. Add a decade for the rest of his reign, and maybe a few years for Nefer-Neferu-Aten, and she would be approximately 13 to 14 years old by this point. That is an educated guess, but you get the point. Ankesenpa-Aten was 14 or so, Tutankaten was about 9 or 10. Together, these young'uns would rule the two lands of Egypt. The name Ankesenpa-Aten means she lives for or because of the Aten. It is a conventional type of name, one that honours the sun god above all. It was also quite similar to the name of her husband. Tutankhaten was the living image of Aten, and Ankesenpa-Aten was one whose life was shaped by the sun god. In other words, they were both children of Aten, and together, these young'uns would rule the kingdom of Egypt. The marriage of Tutankhaten and Ankesenpa-Aten is noteworthy, as being one of the few pharaonic marriages that we can be reasonably sure both parties were related. As far as we can tell, Ankesenpa-Aten was probably the sister, half-sister, or first cousin of Tutankhaten. Personally, I take the cautious approach, and I say first cousin, simply because the parents of Tutankhaten may or may not be Akhenaten and Nefertiti. There is still a lot of research to do on this particular family, and for now, I think it is impossible to say much with certainty. At the very least, I think we can say that they were cousins, part of the same extended family and sharing many of the same ancestors. That would cause some complications down the line. We do not have many images of Ankesenpa-Aten, but the most famous is probably the one that comes from that golden throne. The young queen appears on the back rest of the chair. She is wearing a long white robe with tassels, and a broad collar with a kind of scarf hanging off the back. She has a pleated or layered wig, which is coloured blue, and on top of her head she wears an ornate crown in the form of cow horns with two feathers and a sun disc between. We have seen this particular crown a few times before. It was commonly worn by Queen T, Ankesenpa-Aten's grandmother, and it even showed up a few times with Nefertiti, the young girl's mother. So Ankesenpa-Aten clearly inherited the divine symbolism of those two powerful women. In theory, she would be the next in a line of extremely influential ladies at the Egyptian court in the later 18th dynasty. We will see Ankesenpa-Aten a lot more through our story, but for now let's just focus on this image. 
the young queen appears standing before Tudunk Aten. Her skin is a red glass, and she reaches out, holding a cup, to anoint the young king's collar with perfumes or oils. This gesture fits quite nicely into the traditions of Amana art. It is a scene of intimacy, of connection between royal figures, and it's the sort of picture that Akhenaten probably would have liked. The young couple appear beneath the rays of Aten, with the long beams shining down to hold anks or life before the nose of the king and queen. In other words, the back of Tutank Aten's throne conveys an image of royal splendor, but also intimacy between the young couple, and their favoured position beneath the light of the sun. In this sense, the image of Tutankaten and Ankesen Pa Aten is a direct continuation of the sort of scenes we saw with Akhenaten and Nefertiti. People often imagine this young couple separately or distinct from their predecessors, but artistically they are clearly inheritors of the same tradition. So, at the start of his reign, Tutankaten and the king's great wife Ankesen Pa Aten were simply the new incarnation of Akhenaten and Nefertiti's authority. The future would turn out quite differently, but at the start, they were simply another iteration of what came before. Tutankhaten became the sole king of Egypt around 1343 BCE, give or take. He was approximately 10 years old, and from the start, the king showed his respect and care for the great gods. The reign of Akhenaten and its hostility to Amun was done. Now, a new era would begin, and to start, the king focused on restoring old relationships. Almost immediately, King Tutankhaten married Ankesen Paaten. She was his sister or half-sister or first cousin, and she would rule alongside him for the rest of the reign. They would appear on artifacts and monuments together, and they would be the public face of male and female royalty. It started early on with beautiful artifacts like the Golden Throne. So, Nefer Neferu Aten was dead. Long live King Tutankaten. Or whatever he was going to call himself. Would he stick with Aten or would he rebrand? Well, we know the answer. Next time, we dive into it. Join me soon for episode 140 Tut Ank Amun. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by Dominic Perry. Additional research is provided by Alyssa Day, and audio editing and mixing by Vincent Kavanagh. The music for the show comes from a variety of composers. The primary themes are by Keith Zizzer, and additional instrumentals are by Bettina Joy de Guzman. Occasionally, I also use pieces by Michael Levy, Derek and Brandon Feichter, and Jeffrey Goodman. All music is shared with the permission of the composers. 
If you would like to learn more about these musicians, follow the links in the episode description. Thanks! The History of Egypt podcast is supported by Ra Egyptian Skincare, the natural skincare line with products derived from ancient Egyptian ingredients. Their recipes are inspired by ancient texts and artifacts, and Ra Egyptian consults with Egyptologists to ensure that their ingredients are as close as possible to the ancient items. All ingredients are natural, sustainably, and ethically sourced, and Ra Egyptian is directly supporting African communities that produce these ingredients. At Ra Egyptian, you will find a wonderful range of products, including the Desert Date Oil Serum which is derived from a type of oil originally found in the tomb of Tutankhamun. Also, there is Moringa oil, which is frequently referenced in Egyptian temple offerings, and the Egyptians used Moringa in some of their cosmetic preparations. I can also recommend the Milk and Honey Foaming Cleanser. The rich foam will leave your skin feeling silky, moisturized, and dewy. It is also great for removing makeup. And those who experience skin irritations or blemishes will find that this product is light enough to still leave your skin feeling light and smooth. I've used the Milk and Honey Foaming Cleanser a lot myself, and I have to say, my skin does feel brighter and more moisturized. It is comfortable, light, and quite pleasant to smell. Personally, I highly recommend it. Ra Egyptian has partnered with the History of Egypt podcast to offer a special discount. Listeners can receive 30% off their order. Follow the link in the episode description to visit Ra Egyptian's website and see their wonderful products. Then, at the checkout, use the code EGYPT for 30% off your order. My thanks to Ra Egyptian for providing this generous offer. And folks, I do recommend these skincare products. They are quite delicious. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.